Wednesday night was an interesting night between the Philadelphia Phillies and the New York Mets. There was a chance that it could have turned into a free-for-all, a, a, a beanball war, if you will, with pitchers throwing at each other. It started with a pitcher for the Mets named Jacob Rain, uh, who threw a fastball under the chin of Reese Hoskins, Hoskins at the end of a 9-0 game. Fortunately, the game went off without hits after that, except Hoskins hit a home run on the next pitch and just kind of meandered around the bases to kind of show off and belittle the pitcher. And the reason there was hostilities is that the night before, the, in the sixth inning, the Mets were getting whipped by eight runs, and they decided not to hold JT Real Muto on first base who plays for the Phillies, and so he stole Sackett. And there is an unspoken rule in Major League Baseball that if a, t a game has gotten out of hand and you're not holding the runner on, the runner does not steal Sackett. It's an unwritten rule. Well, in the very next half of the inning, the Phillies did the same, th or the Mets did the same thing to the Phillies. And at the end of the game, here's what one of the Mets players said they did it first that's why we did it <laughs> they broke the unwritten rule and then a newspaper guy wrote an article comparing the Mets and the Phillies to a husband and wife <laughs> whose relationship has gone soured because they keep breaking the unwritten written rules, and expectations are going unmet as a result. Well, in Jeremiah 2, we saw the Lord and Israel depicted as a covenant marriage. The Lord being the bridegroom, and Israel, in this case Judah, being the bride. And like the Phillies and like the Mets... The bridegroom, in this case, had unmet expectations. One difference. Unlike the Mets and the Phillies, the expectations are not unwritten. They have been made very clear in the law of God, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And that brings us to chapter 3. As a result, there's this divorce case going on in chapter 3 verse 1 to about verse 5 is kind of kind of a, a hinge passage that concludes that discussion and then opens up an, another discussion about what must happen in order for some kind of reconciliation to take place at the end of the day it will be repentance well that that brings us to chapter 3 verse 1 and here's what Jeremiah says. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife. Now, the man here is a metaphor for God, wife being Judah. If she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, this is depicting idolatry. That's what idolatry is. It's spiritual adultery. This is metaphorical language. Will he return to her? Would not that land 
be greatly polluted. Now, this verse is alluding to a law from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, where a man is not allowed to remarry the wife he has divorced and a wife who has gone on to remarry another man. In the context, the purpose of the law was to protect a woman from being bounced around from one fickle man to another fickle man. It was to protect the women who were vulnerable in that culture. And so similarly, God asked Judah, can you return to me after defiling the land with your affairs? Not necessarily literal marital affairs, but your idolatry. Now this is important to us because we all struggle with functional idolatry. Anything that we find ourselves esteeming more than we should. Anything that we find our identity in that is not God, our significance in that is not God, our ultimate pleasures in that are not God, that's idolatry. And we're seeing here depicted as an affair on God. That is serious business. And Judah was worse than this woman that is pictured in the law because Judah had many affairs. Judah had fallen into many affairs. And if they were so complacent that they could thought that they could just come back to the Lord, their bridegroom, on a whim when their gods had not delivered, and they never deliver, they needed the shock of their own law. And that's what Deuteronomy 24 is depicted here. Repentance is not that shallow. That's one of the issues in chapter 3, going after shallow repentance. And it had polluted the land because Israel's fidelity to God also had cosmic implications. As proof of Judah's adultery or spiritual adultery, all anyone had to do was look at the idolatrous practices, as he says, on every hill. Notice on verse 2. He says, lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? There was no place where the bare heights had not been ravished. In other words, because of their idolatry, it had brought self-inflicted pain and suffering. That's what the, the idols always do. And he compares them here. He says, by the wayside, you have sat awaiting lovers... Uh, so they're compared here to the prostitutes who sit beside the road recruiting their lovers. Like an Arab in the wilderness, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Jeremiah did not learn how to preach from Joel Osteen. That is obvious. <laughs> well, notice in verse 3. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. Now this drives home a very frequent Old Testament emphasis that God withholds the rain on his people when they are covenantally unfaithful. It's a sign of his disfavor. Let me just give you one text, Leviticus 26 verse 19. Now, in the arid regions of Israel, they depended on the early rains that you see in October and November 
in the late rains of March and April. And if those rains didn't show up, then the crops would fail and disaster would overtake the land. Ironically, Judah had fallen into Baal worship, or some would pronounce it Baal worship. And Baal, or Baal, uh, supposedly was the god of rain. Well, their gods had not delivered for them. The Lord withheld these rains, showing the futility of false religion. And that is a word to us. The gods never deliver. They never deliver. Uh, they never deliver on what they promise. They never forgive us when we sin against them. And they can never promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the gods are all around us. It is so easy to fall into that kind of false religion. And yet God's bride shows no shame. There are other places in Jeremiah says, you don't even know how to blush. Uh, they have uh, on their foreheads, uh, it says they have the foreheads of a whore. My goodness. Notice in verse 3. Uh, Therefore the showers have been held, the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refused to be ashamed. They, they don't even know how to be shameful over their behavior. That's called being given over. That's called having a, a conscience that's been seared. Notice in verse 4. He says, have you not just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. So they call him father and friend, likely to, in order to use the Lord in some kind of a, as a security blanket. Uh, they thought that God's covenant promises to them would mean that he would overlook their sin. Uh, at the end of the day, they were refusing to believe that the wages of sin is death. Now, this is a word I'm just saying, and I go after Southern Baptists all the time because I am one. Um, Southern Baptists in the 20th century used this mantra, et uh, eternal security, once saved, always saved. And let me tell you, I do not believe you can lose your salvation because our salvation is grounded by the obedience of another. And uh, Christ would have to sin in order for us to lose our salvation. Because our salvation is grounded in his obedience. He would have to be unresurrected because our salvation is grounded in his resurrection. Having said that, once saved, always saved is only partial truth. And partial truth masquerading as a full truth is an untruth. It's once saved, always being saved. One of the evidences that you've been saved is that you are growing, that you're maturing, that you're being sanctified. Justification and sanctification cannot be separated. That's essentially what Israel was guilty of, Judah was guilty of. They were the people of the promise. God would never forsake them no matter their sin. Now this part of Jeremiah's message in verses 4 and 5 um, it comes during the time of the reign of Josiah. Notice what he says. He says, have you not just now called to me? My father, you're the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Bo, behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. And so this was written during a time. Now, this is very important. Josiah, it was King Josiah, who was actually a good king, 
when they found the book of the law in the temple, when they were doing the temple renovations, and he brought reform during his time as a king, and they got rid of the high places, the false worship, and, and yet it's clear that the Reformation that they experienced during this time was only partial Reformation. And you can't have a half Reformation. A half a Reformation is no Reformation. And here's how it worked. It was a reform that did not change their hearts. It was a king who was changing things in the culture, but meanwhile, it was externalism because their hearts weren't being changed. There was no real repentance. There was a kind of an outward show of repentance. Now, what is the difference between biblical repentance and false repentance? True repentance and false repentance. Let me give you a couple of thoughts on that. As I thought about that this afternoon, true repentance doesn't regret parting ways with your sin. All right? And partial repentance does. Partial repentance or false repentance misses the sin and actually regrets giving up the sin. True repentance hates sin. False repentance hates the consequences of the sin. True repentance accepts the consequences of one's sin. False repentance is often feigned, if you will, in order to escape the consequences. True repentance accepts godly counsel and godly accountability. False repentance avoids all accountability. And so Israel, Judah, during the time of Josiah, had demonstrated a kind of repentance, but it was a kind of worldly false repentance. And I think this is an, a timeless word because if Reformation is to come to our churches, now you can have Reformation at the individual level where one person or one family experiences a great reform, perhaps a couple that's been struggling and they experience Reformation in their, in their marriage or uh, maybe a person individually has been struggling and they just have a renewal uh, you know, by the Spirit in their hearts, you can have it at the micro level. When we think about Reformation, we're thinking in terms of a, of a corporate Reformation. If we're to see Reformation at the corporate level, repentance is the key. True repentance. The Cambridge Declaration, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it was signed by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals in April of 1996. It speaks to that very issue. And listen to these words from the Cambridge Declaration. Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. As evangelicals, we call ourselves to repent of this sin and to recover the historic Christian faith. The declaration concludes with this prayer. We repent of our worldliness. We have been influenced by the gospels of our secular culture, which are no gospels. We have weakened the church by our own lack of serious repentance, our blindness to the sins in ourselves, which we see so clearly in others, and our inexcusable failure 
adequately to tell others about God's saving work in Jesus Christ. Even here, there's a repentance for not evangelizing. And when you see the studies, for instance, there are studies that say 50% of pastors engage in porn. I heard a young man preach this week, and he said that, offhand, he said that pornography, struggle, the struggle with the pornography does not necessarily mean a person cannot preach. And after he was done, I said, I beg to differ. If you're struggling with pornography, you are disqualified to preach. You're disqualified from the pastorate. Because the, the qualifications of a, an overseer is to be above reproach. And we have victory in Jesus Christ. There is no reason a Christian should struggle with pornography. And so what we're saying here is one of the reasons Reformation does not happen in churches is there's too much unrepented sin. And it does begin with the leadership. And in this particular case, they had refused Judah. Now, again, for those of you that don't know the history here, Israel had been a unified nation until the sins of Rehoboam. And then you have, in 931, there is a division between the ten northern tribes that will collectively be known as Israel after this division and the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so God brought judgment on the ten northern tribes in 722 B.C., and Judah was watching. But they had failed to learn from their, uh, their sister, if you will, idolatry. Notice we in verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And so this verse contains one of the very few explicit statements of a message by Jeremiah during the reign of Josiah. And this is the time of Reformation. You, and that's why he was not received well. Jeremiah was not received well because they're, they're saying, what are you talking about? Look at the reform that's taking place here. It was outward reform without repentance, which American churches are very good at. In fact, uh, this time, scholars believe that the time of J Josiah, um, Jeremiah's ministry during that time will take place between chapter 2 and uh, through chapter 6. And so God asked Jeremiah to consider Judah's refusal to learn from Israel's experience about a hundred years before Jeremiah. All right? Uh, Israel had reached an advanced stage of apostasy and idolatry. It's about a hundred years. And God raised up two prophets. Amos and Hosea. And so this was in the 8th century B.C. And Amos is from the south, and God sent him to the northern tribes. So I'm, I've always envisioned myself as Amos. I, I grew up in Alabama, and God has sent me to the north to call you sinners to repentance. But he, 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 so he, he, he raises up Amos and Hosea 
to pronounce judgment if they do not repent and they fail to repent. And God brought judgment through the Assyrians. The Acts fell via the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And Judah was watching. There weren't, they were not oblivious to what's going on here. Notice in verse 7, And I thought after she had done all this, she will return to me. That is the Lord speaking. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. Treacherous sister. Now at that time, as the axe is falling on the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., do you know who the king of Judah was? Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a relatively good king. And you think Judah would have learned the lesson. But tragically not. A man named Manasseh followed Hezekiah. And Manasseh led Judah into half a century of pure-blown wickedness. One of the most wicked kings Israel or Judah ever had. Remarkably, Judah had even gotten worse under his reign. Notice in verse 8, she saw that for all of the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister, that's the second time we see that language, her sister Judah did not fear. It's kind of like a um, siblings where one sibling goes, you know, AWOL, just goes crazy, and the consequences fall on that older sibling, and then the younger sibling sees what happens to the older sibling, but then follows in the older sibling's path. It's kind of like that, that not that... Israel was older than Judah, but just for sake of comparison. Her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Took her whoredom lightly is literally through the lightness of adultery in spite of what happened in 722 B.C. You've got to understand how devastating the Assyrians' judgment on Israel was. Uh, they were basically depopulated. They would never be an entity again. Now, let's try to remember who the original audience was. These original words were spoken to a people who were experiencing outward reformation. During the time of Josiah, it's before exile. When did the exile occur? Do you remember? There's three stages. 605, 597, and then 586, 587 B.C. So there's three, a three-part exile. So he's, his original audience is during the time of Josiah. We see it. And so he is speaking to people who have time to repent, and the exile won't happen. But then there's a second audience. After what jo Jeremiah has spoken is inscripturated, it will be given to those who are in exile. And he is saying to those in exile, don't let what happened to your fathers fall on you. 
All you have to do is acknowledge your sin and repent. And so it was a call to repentance that was never actually heeded. Exile came, but in the aftermath of exile, the exiles were being challenged to feel the pain in the heart of God and respond at last in true repentance. Now, this is a word to us because, again, let me pick on our own. When we watch our news channels, and we, many of us watch Fox News, right? Wonderful. But it's easy to think that the real problems in our culture are governmental, are the school system, are drugs, are the jail system, are the media, are even Hollywood. And all of them are real problems, let's be honest with you. But notice who Jeremiah is going after. He's not going after the culture. He's saying the problem is with the people of God. You get the people of God right, everything else is going to take care of itself. The reason these things have happened in our culture is because the people of God have not been healthy. The churches, in our case, this isn't the church, but the churches have sin. The churches look no different than the world. That's the problem, and that's what he's going after. Notice with me in verse 10. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me. Is that the third time? Third time he calls her treacherous Judah. Did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. Again, it's a kind of pseudo-repentance, pseudo-reformation. In pretense, declares the Lord, assuming or inferring that Judah did return in an outward way. And so Josiah sought to turn Judah away from the wickedness of his grandfather Manasseh, and his desire was sincere. Josiah was a righteous king, and he got rid of all of these high places, but he could not change their hearts. Their return to the Lord was insincere. And yet they had deceived themselves. That's the heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked into thinking that Josiah's national reforms was adequate. Notice verse 11. The Lord said to me, faithless Israel. Now this is haunting. And here's the reason this is haunting, and I'm about to read it. Judah historically had 20 kings. Some of them were righteous and godly kings. All right? The northern kingdom, how many righteous kings did they have? Zero. They had 20 kings as well. It's interesting that both um, parties, if you will, had 20 kings each. The northern kingdom never had a righteous king. They, were, they apostatized from the very beginning. They were wicked. But notice verse 11. The Lord said to me, and Jeremiah is saying this when reform is taking place. But again, it's reform without repentance. Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. How could it be that the northern kingdom, relatively speaking, wicked from the beginning, could be more righteous 
Remember when uh, Elijah thought he was the only believer in the northern kingdom. God said, no, I have my 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. But as a rule, the northern kingdom was wicked. How could Jeremiah write this? How could it be said that Judah was more wicked than Israel? It would have been insulting. 2 Kings 17 tells us what Judah thought of Israel. Just read 2 Kings 17 sometime. And yet here Judah is being depicted as more wicked. And here's the reason. Judah had the benefit of seeing what God does with idolatry. They, They had a vivid picture of what God does with idolatry. God warns, and then if it goes unheeded, he drops the hammer. And they refuse to even heed a vivid illustration in time and space of God's warnings. And that's why they are depicted as less righteous than even Israel. But having said all this, here comes the surprise. God, the offended bridegroom who has sent his adulterous wife away with a certificate of divorce, suddenly makes an appeal for her to return. Notice in verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Now, this appeal, is you're going to see it three times in the chapter, verse 12, verse 14, and verse 22. It uses the word for repentance that you would pronounce shuv. Or if you were to spell it in English, S-H-U-B. But it's pronounced shove or shuv, depending on who you ask. Shove or shuv, even though it's spelled S-H-U-B in English. It's a word that's found 1,075 times in the Old Testament. It's found 115 times in the book of Jeremiah. And it means to turn back or return. It denotes repentance. That's the key. Now, the law, as we saw, provided no way for idolatrous Israel to return to the Lord. Strictly speaking, it meant permanent divorce. We saw that from Deuteronomy 24. A husband cannot receive back a wife who has married many lovers when she wants to return. So how can this be? Is there a contradiction? No. Is the appeal disingenuous? No couple of things here. The promises of God and the grace of God were the basis on which their, their relationship had been founded in the first place. The promises made to Abraham and the grace as seen in the Exodus and his provision during the time of the wilderness wanderings. The law was a response to their fallenness not a limitation on the grace of God. 
Now that's an important point. The law was a response to their fallenness, not a limitation on the grace of God. God's grace, God's mercy, God's love can redeem and transform the places where the law can't reach. And so if the first question that we saw in verse 1, can, if a man divorces his wife, can he return to her? Will he return to her? The answer is no. But if it's asked in terms of the one to whom that metaphor is referring to, the Lord, the answer is more hopeful. And here's how that works. While we confess and while we affirm the Bible's revelation of both the love of God and the anger of God, we don't see them as equivalent. That's important. Love is an eternal attribute. It's, it is who God is. It is an eternal attribute of God. It's a part of his eternal being. Anger is not. Anger is the holy response of this God to sin and evil. Repentance leads to the ending of that anger. God will love eternally. God will not be angry forever. In God's initiative of grace, <coughs> which we see here in this appeal, is not motivated by anything he sees in his people. But it is conditioned on the one thing Israel must do. Notice in verse 13. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God, and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Now this sounds so simple, unless you've been a parent. All you have to do is acknowledge your guilt. Quit pointing fingers, quit making excuses, just acknowledge it. But these were the very people who in chapter 2, listen to this, verse 23. How can you say, I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the bells. Verse 35, chapter 2. You say, I'm innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. So these are the very people that had denied any wrongdoing. It's interesting I, how oftentimes you will have in, in marital counseling, and I've not seen that so much here, but I've seen it where the husband believes the wife is, is the problem and the wife believes the husband is the problem. So you have two perfect people who have a bad marriage. It's, it's just a remarkable thing. Well, that's what, that's what God is dealing with here. You won't even acknowledge your sin, your idolatry. So how can we ever be reconciled? Verse 14 and 15. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family. I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Of course, we know a chief shepherd would come, and out of his ministry would come what we know as shepherds, as pastors, 
And this is what the people of God need. There has never never been a true reformation that did not begin with the word of God. Ever. Verses 16 to 18 to close this so we can get into business session. This may be the the most sober message before a business meeting ever. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Oh, if they had, if Spielberg and those guys had read this before the Raiders of the Lost Ark, there wouldn't have been a movie. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Again, what is Jeremiah doing here? This is what all the judges, uh, the prophets do. They, they, they expose the, the problem of infidelity, and then they show the judgment that's coming, but there's always going to be an eschatological hope which is grounded by the promises made to Abraham and then to David. All right? And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall gain or join the house of Israel. There'll be reconciliation. And together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. So in short here, Jerusalem itself would become the throne of God, not just the ark. And the law which had been housed in the ark would ultimately be housed in the hearts of the people of God. We'll see that in Jeremiah 31. And this has implications for the nations in keeping with the Abrahamic covenant that all the nations would be blessed through this seed. The nations and the, their worship would be transformed. Now, it's typical of the prophets that they will prophesy something that has an immediate fulfillment, but then there is a filling full. You see that even with the, the building of the temple. The son of David would build the temple, but we know that there is an ultimate fulfillment of that as well. And so you see this. Uh, Christopher J.H. Wright says, then when that ultimate fulfillment comes, it's like the release of a champagne cork into a fizzing vision that points to a New Testament fulfillment in Christ and to an ultimate future that still lies ahead. But one final application as we close here, the tension we see here within the heart of God that idolatry produces. It is grievous to the heart of God Now, when we talk about God being immutable, that is true. God does not change. He is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being. And yet, God, in some mysterious fashion, is disturbed and grieved over false worship. And we've seen the powerful longing of this merciful husband alongside his anger towards Idolatry. You see it in the book of Hosea as well. So there's this great tension of hatred and anger over the sin and yet this longing for his, his bride to return. And that real tension can only be resolved when God's heart was torn on a Roman cross 
when in the person of Jesus Christ, God poured out his judgment on idolatry. He poured out his wrath on idolatry. The very sins that we commit every day. And he raised this son from the grave to restore and reverse that verdict. And so Jeremiah is preparing us for that. Jeremiah is showing us here what real repentance is. It is the key to reformation. Um, and it shows us how heinous sin is to the heart of God. But there's nothing that reveals that more than the cross. That he would nail his son to a cross because of what idolatry does to his people. And because it offends a God who is infinite in his holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this day that Jeremiah speaks of. A day when your people will be restored Judah and Israel will be restored, and we recognize that the nations will gather. And Lord, we thank you that that fulfillment is found in the faithful man from the tribe of Judah, the God-man, the Savior, the Messiah, the King, the one that Jeremiah will later call the branch of David. We, Lord, as we thank you for that. And, Lord, now as we go into business session, we pray you would grant us the mind of Christ. May we appropriate that mind by your Spirit as we discern your will on church matters. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.